Good morning, church. Hey, if you're a guest with us this morning, uh, my name is Chad McCartney. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Austin Oaks Church, and we're glad to have you here and, and our courage you're here visiting with us, and we want to help you get connected. We'll have more information about how to do that at the end of the service, but really want you to know that the heart of our church is to be simply about Jesus, and we want to help people meet him, know him, and follow him in all that we're doing. And, and our, we're in a series right now uh, titled Water Makes a Way. And this series is about the Holy Spirit, which the Bible tells us is God's presence with us here on earth after Jesus was resurrected and returned to the right hand of his Father. And so we're looking at the work that he does and why he's here and and what he accomplishes in our lives. And today in particular, we're going to look at this idea of spiritual gifts, uh, in particular a few of those gifts uh, we'll talk through today a little bit more and, and what it means to quench the Spirit and how do we avoid quenching the Spirit, which is stopping the work that He wants to do in and through our lives with the gifts. So if you uh, have a Bible, I'm going to give you two spots we're going to be today. The, the, these passages will also come up on the screen if you're not familiar with some of these books where they are in the Bible. But the first one we'll look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at about four or five verses there where Paul talks a little bit about that to the church in Thessalonica. And then we're going to elaborate from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul uh, really takes a whole chapter and we're not going to cover the whole chapter. I'm going to pull out key aspects of it that touch on uh, aspects of these gifts and how he has given us uh, instruction on how to use them and, and not to use them. So if you bow your heads and pray with me, we'll jump in and take a look at these things this morning. Father, we love you, and we are so grateful that we can gather together as your people and that we have your words uh, to listen to, to read from, and to seek to understand. And we pray this morning that your spirit would open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to understand these truths, but not just understand them, uh, but to obey them and to put them into practice, that we would be a church Uh, that represents you in our city, Lord, that we would represent all that you would want us to represent uh, in your goodness and in your glory, Lord. And we pray that this morning as we open these truths. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When my boys were uh, in their early teens, uh, I bought us all mountain bikes uh, and, and if you know, we lived in South Texas. We were living in Laredo or just outside Laredo at that time. And in Laredo or in South Texas, everything has a thorn. And the thorns are like the size of nails down there. They're huge. So needless to say, you know, my boys were excited. They started riding their bikes. And as typical boys, rarely did they ever want to ride the bikes on the trails or within the bounds of the trails, so they're all over the place, which meant you were constantly in thorns, and they were constantly getting flat tires. And if you've ever changed flat tires on a bike, you know it's very tedious. You're doing it over and over and over again, and so that became frustrating to them, and pretty soon they really didn't enjoy the bikes because they were constantly getting frustrated. In fact, you could say they actually despised the bikes at one point because they would get a flat every time they took them out to ride. Now fast forward about six months to one of the reasons why I had gotten the bikes. 
is we had planned a family trip to Colorado, and we were heading uh, to Rocky Mountain National Park. We were going to be camping at the YMCA in Rocky Mountain National Park, and right next to this area where we were going to be camping was uh, a ski resort called Winter Park. And in the summer, we were there in the summer, in the summer, it converted to what was called Trestle Bike Park. And Trestle Bike Park was designed by the same designers that designed the world premier bike park in Whistler, Canada. Uh, and the same team came down and designed this. So we got to there, I got to bring my boys, and we got the bikes all ready to go. And, and I can't tell you how much fun I had watching them tear down the mountain on those bikes, like curves and obstacles and ramps and steep descents. I had so much joy watching them put those bikes to their absolute capacity that day. In fact, there were crashes, there were spills, there was blood, but I had to literally yank them off the mountain to get them to go home, and I could ask them at any moment if they wanted to go back, and they would go back. They absolutely thoroughly enjoyed the gift that they had. I think we can all relate to that. I think we all, if we're honest, can think of a situation in our lives where we received a gift and maybe we didn't understand it in its context, we didn't understand its purpose, or maybe the gift wasn't exactly what we thought it was, or it was broken in some ways, and as a result, rather than enjoying the gift, we either began to neglect it we began to ignore it, or maybe we even despised or hated that gift because it wasn't what we had originally thought. Let's take the gift of parents, for example. Some of you have parents that you didn't really fully appreciate until you were older. Others of you had some parents that, that just really plainly didn't know what they were doing, and they left some really deep difficult wounds in your life. And then several of you have parents who were very instrumental in launching you into being the person that you are today. Just because we've had some good experiences with parents or bad experiences with parents doesn't mean we should just throw away the gift that parents are. It just means some of us haven't experienced them the way they were intended to be experienced. See, all of us here have received the gift of some level of education here in this church. It may be all different levels, but all of us in some ways have received some form of education. And my guess is that in everyone in here, you've had some really good classes with some great teachers, and you've had some really bad classes with some not so great teachers. But I think most of us would agree, we're not just gonna throw away education, we're not gonna just throw away teachers because we've had some bad experiences and some good experiences. We've had things on either side of the spectrum. I think I can guarantee that every single person here at some point has been to church in their life. Even if today is that first time. Some have had really painful experiences in church. Some have had delightful ones. Some have heard worship teams that sang out of pitch and preachers who failed to have a point. And some of you have shown up to church fully anticipating the senior pastor's message only to be deeply disappointed 
by the meanderings of the associate pastor. Now, I pray that never happens to you, but I'm afraid it's inevitable. All this to say, the fact that something is intended to be a gift might be misused, it might be misunderstood, it might be broken or applied in the wrong context, but that does not demand nor require that the gift be disregarded, be discarded, or even despised. You see, every gift comes with implied instructions. Gifts must be stewarded by the one who receives them. And every unconditional gift comes with conditions on how it must be used to fully enjoy it. So today we're going to look at that very thing. We're going to look at a gift that's been given to us, the church, by God himself. And failing to know the conditions in which these gifts are given does not make the gift nor the giver bad. So today we want to dive into this concept of of spiritual gifts, of supernatural gifts that God gives his children through the spirit to build up the church. Many have been hurt by this issue. Many have misunderstood this issue. Many have abused this issue, and many have simply neglected or ignored it. But today we're going to take it head on. We're going to look at a passage that that maybe, even if you've been in church for a long time, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if most of you have never heard a message that's walked through this passage, just because of how often neglected these particular things are in the church. And maybe that tells us a little bit about why these particular gifts or this particular issue has been so divisive and so hurtful in the church because we've avoided it rather than learning about it. So today I want to show you, uh, basically take you through three questions. Three questions I think that Paul answers in these passages that will allow you to fully embrace and enjoy the gifts that God's given us. And when it comes to spiritual gifts, here's, here's the three questions we want to answer today. What have we gotten wrong? What have we gotten wrong when we've looked at the spiritual gifts? The second thing we want to answer is what can we do to get it right? So what have we gotten wrong? What can we do to get it right? And then lastly, I want to get really practical and say, how does it look when it's done right? So what have we done wrong? How can we get it right? And then what will it look like when it's done right? So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is talking to this church, and he's instructed them about all kinds of things that they were just lost about or, or frustrated about or mis, under, misinformed about, in particular about end times things. But now he's just ending his message, as Paul often does, with some summary statements. And he's just encouraging this church to, after telling them about things they should be aware of, he just says, hey, but more than anything, just be the church. Don't, don't worry about the end times things so much. Don't get all caught up in the details of those things without remembering that the reason God tells you of these things in the end times is not so you can predict when it's going to happen, but so that you can be ready, so you can be in action. You can be living as the church at any moment. 
and at all times. And he lists off this whole list of exhortations at the end of how he is encouraging this church to act. And within them, he gives us some very clear guidance on spiritual gifts, in particular one that we're going to see. So in verse 16, he says this. He says, rejoice always. Pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So he's listing off all these things he's encouraging them to do. Then in verse 19, he says this, don't stifle the spirit or don't quench the spirit. What does that mean? He says, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. So there's Paul's start here in, in bringing up one of the spiritual gifts here that he's talking about. And he says in this passage, uh, really quickly, he gives four contrasting commands, two positive and two negative in this. And, and here's the heart of what I want to say in this first part. What have we gotten wrong? And that's this. When I despise prophecy, and, and in some of these cases, you could just insert gift. Paul's talking about a specific gift, but you could insert any gift within this, really, but he says, don't despise prophecy instead of examining it and holding to what is good. See, when I do that, when I despise prophecy, when I despise a gift, instead of examining it and holding to what is good, I quench the Spirit's gifting in my life, in my church. When I despise something that God calls good, I quench what he's wanting to do in my life and in the life of the church. And, and Paul gives four clear commands in this passage. Two that are negative, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecy. And then he contrasts that with what we should do. He says, test all things and hold to what is good. So he gives us some guardrails for it in these commands. You see, I despise the giver when I despise the gift. Let that sit with you a little bit. When you despise a gift, you despise the giver of that gift. Pick, picture this in your head. Picture you invite someone from church over for dinner, say, this afternoon, and, and, and you've prepared this elaborate meal. You've spent all this time in prepping it, and, and you've even found out what their preferences are and things that they like, and you've fixed it to a T. It's one of your favorite things, and you're exceptional at cooking this particular meal. And your guests come in, and you're excited to have them, and you're hospitable to them, and you bring them in, and they sit down at the table. And after you say grace, you notice that your guest opens up their little bag and pulls out a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and says, I'm just going to eat this today. Now, they're not despising you, right? They're just despising the meal that you made. No, it's very personal, because you provided that gift for them, and their enjoyment of that gift is an enjoyment of your hospitality. When they despise the gift... They despise the one who gives it. So Paul gives us some other guidance as we go on. And I want to jump to 1 Corinthians 14 here as he encourages this church and talks more specifically about these gifts as well. And he starts in verse 14. 
here by summarizing really what he says in verse 13. So given a little context, the church in Corinth was an incredibly gifted church, but they were an incredibly immature church. And in verses, or chapters 12 through 14, Paul's addressing all that. He addressed gifts in chapter 12, then he comes to chapter 13, and that's what we know as the love chapter, but he's really talking about love in the midst of gifts, saying love is more important than gifts. It's the priority in which your gifts should be used. And so he summarizes that in chapter 12, gives some other information about gifts and their existence and how long they'll be around until Christ's return, he basically tells them. And then he comes to chapter 14 and he summarizes it and says this in verse one. He says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in a tongue is not speaking to, God, to people but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. So here's the, the thing I want you to see in this passage in, in, in contrast. What can we do to get it right? And Paul says it like this, and I'm going to summarize it like this. When I earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy, he says, with a priority of love, I welcome the Spirit's work in my life, in my church. When I despise these things, I quench it. But when I welcome them and I pursue them with a priority on love, I welcome that work in my life. I welcome that work in my church. In fact, it's just the flip side of what we talked about. When we delight in the giver, We delight in his gift. When we delight in his gift, when we pursue the gifts that he gives, it's an indication of us delighting in him himself. We should never seek his gifts apart from him. However, when we say things like, you know, I'm not seeking any gifts from God. I'm not seeking his reward. I'm just doing these things because it's the right thing to do. Do you know that's really not a very impressive thought. It's actually a very arrogant thought. It's a very selfish thought. It's elevating yourself above God when you say that you're just doing something because it's the right thing to do. What makes it right? God makes it right. God decides what is right and what is wrong. And if he says he wants you to pursue gifts that he gives, then the pursuit of them becomes the right thing to do. And you pursuing them is your way of delighting in him. Now, it's not going after them and misusing them apart from him. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, pursue them because as you do so, as you pursue the gifts I give you, you delight in me. I mean, I mean if you bought your son or your daughter a car, let's say you bought a car and you, you picked out just the right one you thought would be great for them and you purchased it, you got it ready and you gave it to them and, and, and they just totally delighted in it. Like they kept it clean, like they actually vacuumed it, they washed it on a regular basis, they, they picked up their friends and brought them to practice and took them to school and brought them in all these great places and they ran to HEB for you every time you needed something. Would you not find great delight in the fact that they were delighting in that gift that you gave them? Absolutely. Don't disconnect the gift from the giver. And that's what Paul's talking about in this passage. We shouldn't do that either. 
So that's the easy stuff. That's the big picture principle. And I think most people can at least accept those truths. It's the how that's got most people hung up. My experience in the church has been that there's typically the two exact extremes on how these things play out in the church. And here's what's really sad about that, is you have this wild abuse of the gifts over here, and then you have the total neglect and ignorance of the gifts on this side. And most of us have probably grown up or experienced one of those two extremes, and both of them are wrong. Paul's gonna show us a better way in here. And this has been available for us all the time. It's right here. It's just, like I said, I never heard someone preach on this passage in all the years that I've been in church. It's amazing that it's neglected as much as it is. So what does it look like when it's done right? So here's my overarching statement I want you to take from this. And all these little sub points I'm just going to pull out of this passage support this. Is When we welcome the Spirit's gifting in love, when we understand these things, we welcome the Spirit's gifting in love when we understand these things. The first one is this, that my gift's purpose is to build others up. That's the first thing Paul's gonna teach us in 1 Corinthians 14, that I welcome the Spirit's gifting and love when I recognize that the purpose of my gift is to build others up. Here's how Paul says it in this chapter. He says in verse three, on the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. He goes on to summarize this in in verse 12. And just for sake, I'm pulling out the key principles and summarizing them so we don't, don't have time to go through the whole chapter. But look in verse 12, he uses a summary statement. He says, so also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, Seek to excel in what? Building up the church. That's the purpose of the spiritual gifts. They're not for us to to display our great abilities. They're to build others up. It's for us to see less of ourselves and more of that other person. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7. When he was talking about the gifts here, he, he, here's the only purpose statement we see in Scripture for the gifts as a whole. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person. Why? For the common good. We need your gift in this church, not for you, but to build up the church. It gives you purpose and meaning that says, I'm needed and my gift when when you just show up and then go do your own thing you've missed the very heart and soul of why you're gifted you're gifted for the building up of others that's why we're a body that's how we operate together see one reason in particular in this area people i think christians struggle with prophecy still existing is because we've misunderstood the purpose of prophecy that's why oftentimes we say, well, well, prophecy doesn't still exist. Well, we misunderstood the purpose of it, right? This verse tells us its purpose. Its purpose is to strengthen and to encourage and to console. Many of us wrongly believe its purpose is to predict the future. 
That's what we see. We hear prophecy and we, we immediately go to predicting the future. That's not the purpose of prophecy. Nowhere in scripture does it say that's the purpose of prophecy. Here it tells us it's to strengthen, to edify, and to console. Now, does prophecy at times predict the future? Absolutely it does. But look at the context for why it's given. There's all kinds of prophecy all throughout the Old Testament. There's whole books of prophets that are in there. Guess what every single one of those prophets was doing when they were speaking forth the future? They weren't just giving authors like content so they could write books about predicting what things are going to happen next. That's what we do with it, but that is never what prophecy was intended to do. Every one of those prophecies, go back and read them, every one of those prophets was speaking to God's people when they were in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. The majority of them were written when those God's people, Israel, was in Babylon or, or in you know, some kind of foreign land. They were oppressed and they'd been ripped out of their land. And this prophet comes and he's not just predicting the future, he's consoling them and saying, hang on, stay faithful, continue being the people that you are because this is not your final destination. God will bring you back. He will restore you as a people. Church, if, if their only reason for prophecies was for predicting the future, then what good were they to the majority of people that saw them? Because most of them never lived to see those events come about. They're absolutely useless if all they're there for is to predict the future. Prophecy is meant to encourage, to strengthen, and to console. Let me ask you something. Do you ever come to church needing to be strengthened, encouraged, or consoled? Wouldn't it be great if there was a spiritual gift that did that? I don't know why God didn't think of that, right? If only he would have thought of something like that. I'll, I'll let him know about this after the service. See, if we see that gift primarily for that, then suddenly we realize that the gift of prophecy still existing doesn't have to exist to speak forth new scripture. It doesn't need to exist to, to predict the future for us. It exists to accomplish this purpose. And that's it. Let, let's talk about tongues a little bit in this one because that's the most confusing one. But there's some beautiful teachings in this passage about it. Um, verses 13 through 17 give us some great guidance on it. Follow along with me in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 13 through 17. Paul now is talking about, therefore the person who speaks in a tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is what? 
not being built up. Meaning the gift is not being used for its purpose. Gifts are given to build the church up. And Paul says, if they're not being used in that way, then they should not be used. So same, same thing. You see the same exact purpose here. Uh, so, so what is the purpose of tongues? This is, this is, I think, a game breaker for this. I don't know why we don't talk about this because it's, again, very clearly given in Scripture. And when we understand its purpose, it seems kind of weird or useless. Like, why are we speaking in these other tongues? And, and sometimes it's useful. And like in Pentecost, when they spoke and the people from all the different languages or areas they came from heard in their own languages. But that's not the same as how it's often practiced in the church today. So what's the purpose of it? Like, what does it attain? Well, the Bible tells us right here in this chapter. Listen to what it says in here uh, in verses 21 and 22. If you just continue down here, he gives us a purpose. Paul says this, um, he says, it is written in the law, and he's, he's quoting Isaiah 28 here, so you can go back to Isaiah 28, we'll look at it in a minute. He says, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues. Now, let's take the context. So he's quoting Isaiah. Who was Isaiah pe- speaking to when he said this people? Who are God's people in Isaiah, Israelites, okay? So he's saying, I will speak to this people, the the Israelite people, by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now look at this, here it is. Speaking in tongues, then, is intended as a sign. Hmm. A sign points to something. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. Let me explain that. So it's something about foreigners speaking in foreign tongues, and the people are Israel. Well, go back to Israel's history. Like, when are there foreigners speaking in other tongues all around them in their land? When does that happen? It happens when Israel is not obedient to God. When, when foreign nations occupy their land, when they're surrounded by people talking in foreign tongues by other nations, it's God's judgment upon them for their disobedience to their covenant with God. Okay? They're the unbelievers in here. Paul is saying tongues is a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. So Israel knew anytime there was foreigners speaking in foreign tongues all around them, they should go, oh my goodness, this is, this is God's judgment upon this. The reason foreigners are occupying our land is because we are, have rejected God. We've rejected, for now it's rejected his Messiah. Back then it was just rejecting his covenant. And God said, every time that happens, I will take you out of your land and I will bring foreigners in here to, to submerge you. Well, guess what's happening right now, church? You follow the gospels. How did the Jewish people respond to their Messiah when Jesus came? They rejected him. Right? They're the unbelievers. Tongues exist as a sign for us and to the Jews that, that right now the Jews are disobedient to God. And until they return, until they come back in mass numbers, as the Bible says they will and repent, tongues are a sign for us and for them 
that God is saving the Gentiles right now. That's us. He's bringing in this great harvest of Gentiles. Paul talks about this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And until the fullness of us Gentiles come in, the Jews are going to be in this rebellious state, and foreigners are going to occupy their land. Does that sound familiar to, like, local news that you're hearing right now? Absolutely. It's right here. Paul tells us why that's here. It's crazy when you open this book up what you can learn, isn't it? I'm blown away every time I get the blessing of doing this. So that's the first thing is understanding the purpose of my gift, and it's to build others up. Second thing we see is I welcome the Spirit's work in my life and my church when my gift should be used in an orderly manner. That's the second thing we're going to see from Paul here, when my gift should be used in an orderly manner. So let's see this. We see this in verses 26 through 29 in particular. Look at what Paul says here. He says, what then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one. So Paul's talking about the corporate church like right now. He's talking about when you come together. He's not talking about individuals. When you gather as a church, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, there are only to be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. So Paul tells us how we should be used. We use these things in an orderly way. Go down to verse 40. He summarizes it. He says, but everything is to be done decently and in order. Do you know how you welcome the Spirit's gifting and love? Is when you understand that our gifts should be used in an orderly manner. Don't for one minute think that the Spirit-filled church is a chaotic church. That is a lie from the very pit of hell. In fact, when there's false manifestations of the Spirit, because the devil is going to try to mimic everything that God does, the devil is going to do it in a slightly twisted way. And he would love to see chaos. He'd love to see our gifts make me look great and put all the attention on me. And God is saying, no, you do it in an orderly way. And your gift is to build others up, not yourself. There's no place in Scripture that we see such. Instead, a spirit-filled church, as we see here, is a diverse and multi-active church. It is not centered around one personality, but is a living, breathing, supernatural, active organization, an organism with every body part participating and engaged. Third thing we see when we see the Spirit working in our church, we understand this, that the expression of my gift is subject to my will. The expression of my gift is subject to my will. Let, let me explain this. Let me first show you what Paul says, and I'll explain what he does mean and what he doesn't mean by that. Verse 30 through 32, he talks about this. Let me find it. Verse 30, he says this, but if someone has been has been revealed, but if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. 
And he tells us why. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophet's since God is not a God of disorder but of peace. Paul is saying here that not that I get to choose how I use my gift or for what purpose I use it. That's what it, not what he means when he says it's subject to your will. He's saying, he's clearly stating that when a person uses their gift, it's not an out-of-body experience. They're not taken over by the Spirit in such a way that they have no control of themselves and what they're doing. You have absolute control. I have the gift of pastor-teacher. I don't suddenly stand up in the middle of the service, right in the middle of a song, and start shouting my message across the whole church because God's filled me with this gift and and I have to use it. I I don't do that most of the time. (laughs) I wait until the appropriate time. Likewise, uh, contrary to what us pastors tell you, we can stop whenever we want. We just don't. Don't for one minute let us manipulate you into thinking, well, the spirit was just so grasping me, I couldn't stop, I had to go on. It's not true. Dang it. See, the concept of ecstatic gifts that are often talked about in which each person loses control is pagan in nature. It's not of God. When people say they are so caught up in the spirit that they lost control of themselves, that is not a God filling. You don't see that here in scripture and it doesn't fit with what Paul says at all. The spirit filling is never disorderly. Rather, the spirit's presence brings order to chaos. That's what the creation account shows us. And the spirit hovered over the chaos of this world. It brought order from chaos. Never the other way around. Last thing we see in here is when we welcome the spirit's work in a loving way and we understand this principle. That if I ignore God's teaching on the gifts, I should be ignored. I'm giving you permission to ignore people in church today doesn't happen very often, but I'm giving you permission because God gives us permission. And here's how he puts it right here in verses 37 and 38 of this passage. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. Meaning if you really think you're spiritual, if you really think you're a prophet, great, then put what Paul says here into practice. He says, if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So here's my simple application of that. Uh, If I ignore God's teaching on the gifts, I should be ignored. So I'm, I'm telling you to do this. Stop listening to people who don't obey these principles. Stop listening to them. Many of us have filled our heads with all kinds of principles that simply aren't true. And we despise these gifts or we're afraid of these gifts or we abuse these gifts or we overuse these gifts because we won't submit them to the teaching of God's word. And on the other hand, if people do follow these principles, then start listening to them. 
Don't be clumped in with the people who are abusing these gifts, either by misusing them or ignoring them altogether. Both are wrong. God has given his church gifts to accomplish his work in this world. Ephesians 4, 7 through 13 says it like this, and I want to bring things to a close in seeing the person of Christ. And I want to call us as a church to respond to this. But Paul writes this about Jesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. He says this, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. For it says, this is speaking of Jesus, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to people. Then Paul explains that. He says, but what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. He was crucified and he died and he descended to the lower parts of the earth. They would have called it Sheol or, or the grave, the place of death. He descended there and he conquered sin and death. He confronted our ultimate enemy, sin and Satan, and he crushed him in his resurrection. Like a conquering king who went out to an enemy kingdom, conquers that king and brings back all the spoils of that winning victory. And it says he ascended and he descended to the lower parts of the earth. The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Do you see what he's doing here? He's using this picture to say he conquered the enemy kingdom and he took the spoils and he came back and he's distributing these gifts to his kingdom, to people of his kingdom, to his church, to you, to me. And he's telling us how he distributed them. And he's going to tell us why. And he said to equip the saints. These gifts are given to equip the saints. That's us. For the work of ministry. To build up the body of Christ. Cost him his life to purchase these gifts. How dare we neglect such a valuable gift? See, these gifts, their presence, their use, the reminders that his kingdom has won, he's the winning king. It reminds us that his kingdom will come. And every time we joyfully and properly use these gifts, we taste of his kingdom and we proclaim that it is coming. See, a, a prophetic word is a truth from Jesus' kingdom spoken into this broken world to strengthen, to encourage, and to console and to align our perspective and align our hearts with his heart. The gift of helps, another one of the gifts, is a supernatural reminder that Jesus is our helper. And when he came to earth, he did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life for 
a ransom. You, if you have the gift of helps, every time you selflessly serve another, you manifest his kingdom on this earth so people can see the gifts that he's given and what kind of kingdom he is bringing us to. The gift of encouragement is a supernatural balm that is applied to the heart of one of Jesus' children facing discouragement, disappointment, or even intense hopelessness. The gift of administration, right? We always think, oh, who wants the gift of administration? Do you know what? It's the manifestation of Jesus' beautiful and orderly kingdom being expressed here in this messy, disorganized world. And every time we use a gift, we bring a little bit of his kingdom and stick it here on this earth for all to see that he's the true king. You see, these gifts that he gives are tiny supernatural glimpses of Jesus and his kingdom. They're strategic strikes from his kingdom to ours. But they're strikes that are not intended to destroy this world, but to build his kingdom within it. Why would you want to see these? Why? Because we're frequently full of ourselves and so impressed with what we could do. Because truly seeing Jesus will never result in our glory. So we push these things aside because we're too full of ourselves. Now seeing Jesus can only result in an overwhelming, self-giving, sacrifice-making, other-focused, worship-offering joy that nothing in this world can explain. I mean, why would you want that? Why would we want to be so joyful in the midst of giving ourselves away that nothing this world could throw at us could phase us? Why would we want to be so joyful in Jesus that we could face any sickness, we could overcome any persecution, we could persevere through any trial, we could endure any pandemic, any heartache, any unrejoicing, any struggle, how would we, why would we want that? Why would we want to be able to rejoice amidst every setback? Why would we want that? Because everything we seek in this world is to try to do that. And nothing we ever get in this world ever accomplishes that. Because you were made for his kingdom. And his gifts. I don't know about you, but I know I have some work to do in this area. I have some confession to make. I have some pride to put to death. I have some grace to seek. And I must decrease so that he can de increase. And my guess is I'm not the only one here. So I want you to join me. I hope you will join me for the next couple minutes as we take some time as a church to simply do two things. The first one is just a time to confess. You don't have to go anywhere for this. You do it right where you're at. 
I believe God spoke to you through his word today in some area, maybe multiple areas in your life. And he's encouraging you, maybe by correcting your view in some of these things. I want to encourage you to confess that here in just a moment. Just you and God. Confess to him the ways in which you've despised his gifts or abused his gifts, whatever it might be for you. Just confess it. Own it before him. And the second thing I want you to do is just ask him. Ask him to give you the gifts that he wants you to have. Not for your sake, but for the sake of all these people that you see around you. Someone in this church needs the gift that God is giving you so that you can build them up, so that we can be built up together. Instead of tearing each other down, Instead of churches splitting by the dozens. What if we tried it his way? I dare you to try it his way and see how different it is. So I'm just going to give you a, a, a couple minutes. Just have that conversation with him. The worship team's going to play. You confess what you need to confess and then ask him to fill you, to gift you, to empower you for the sake of his church. And the team will call you in in a moment to sing a chorus that will kind of bring that together. I'm going to pray over us in the midst of that transition and we'll close out with our song together as we continue to worship.
I pray over us and then we're going to stand and sing the song together. Lord, hear the prayers of your people. Forgive our arrogance, Lord. Forgive our ignorance. Forgive our selfishness when it comes to using the gifts you have given. Lord, we want everything that you have for us. Everything that you have purchased and promised for us. We need everything that you have promised. For your glory and for the good of this church, Lord, fill us with your spirit to equip and empower this body. For your glory and the good of our community, fill us with your spirit to infiltrate and impact our community, Lord. They don't need to see more of us. They need to see more of you in us. Lord, I know that is your will. And we pray that your will will be done in us and in our church, Lord, for your glory for our good. We pray this. Amen.